On a moonless night in April 1916, Patrick Henry Pierce looked out on his beloved city of Dublin in flames. The sound of distant explosions and gunfire is only interrupted by the occasional cry of pain from his fellow soldiers on the floor below. How had it come to this? Patrick had been a teacher once, but now history would remember him only as a fighter. He had been a poet, but now the only words of his that would live on would be words of revolution. The whole world was at war, Patrick thought as he sipped from a canteen, but until now his corner of that world had still held some semblance of peace. In that moment, Patrick found it hard to remember why so many of them had worked so hard to break that peace. The preparation alone for this moment had crossed two continents and had cost the lives of many before they had even begun. Was their dream really worth throwing away his people's chance for peace? But maybe it wasn't peace that had come before, only quiet. And quiet subjugation is still subjugation. The hiss of a bullet brought Patrick back to his surroundings. He set down his canteen and began to head back downstairs. He didn't know what the next few days would bring, but in the end, win or lose, Patrick just hoped there would be something left after all of this. Welcome back to another series of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Will. How are you doing, Will? I'm good. I'm so excited that we're back. And I know it's been a really long time, listener, but honestly, we're here to stay. We've had a few uh, grumblings in the in the DM saying where are we, but we are here. It's yes. just take we've had very busy lives. Back by popular demand, can we say? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> we can. Why not? And we should also say to listeners because you won't know, but we are actually in the same room which is really weird i'm looking at you in the eye and i don't like this yeah it is a bit close it's quite intense (laughs) because for if you didn't know for the longest time because we started this podcast during um the dark times which i won't mention uh, so we did everything online and we are now finally living in the same city so we can do this in person so it's kind of weird it's a bit much i don't like you looking at me anymore but like so i'll stay out my laptop instead but it's it should be good and it should make the podcast flow a little better so hopefully yeah i'm finding it like it's much quicker and actually i'm i'm sort of waiting for you to pause because there's always an internet connection issue like you do it over zoom so now we're like doing it we've talked about this a lot and it might be quite boring for you listeners but yeah there's a lot of like thinking about the way you pause before you speak and the way that doesn't work on and i'm sure you guys have all done like online like meetings and stuff for work and it's horrible because everyone interrupts each other and it's and it also makes a nightmare to edit but now if i gradually come to the end of my sentence then I can start to come in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works. Kind of works. Hey, look, it's baby steps, baby steps. So the point is, we're back for another series. This is going to be um, uh, another city series. Uh, we did one a couple of, God, it was ages ago now. But for me mm. personally, I adored doing cities. It's a great medium by which to tell fabulous stories of history. Um, so yeah, we hope you enjoyed that little intro at the beginning. Um, mm. <laughs> there'll be plenty more where that came from. Yes. And yeah, welcome back. Welcome back. And so we've got uh, 10 episodes for you. We're spacing them out a bit more this time, so it'll be once every two weeks. Hopefully that's not too sad, although you've waited around for a number of months, so I think it's fair enough. Um, but yeah, I think we're ready to, to jump into uh, Dublin, our first city. Yeah, can't wait to get there. Let's go. So, Will. Yes, Patrick. Dublin. Love I, it. as I don't know if any any of you know, but you know, I am half Irish. Yes, so for your sins. For my, hey. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm Irish too. Are you? 
Yeah. Oh, like barely. Aren't an you eighth. Like, aren't an you eighth. like, yeah, a, t- a tiny bit of everything. Just one generation less than you, Patrick. Is that? No, half. Shit. Two <laughs> generations. <laughs> Your maths is way off there. And I'm the maths tutor. Yeah. So I really enjoyed doing this because actually a lot of Irish history, I mean, none of it is taught in British schools, which you might get a sense of in this story why it's not taught in British schools. <laughs> but it means that there's so much of history that I think Irish people in the UK don't know because it's not really talked about. Most of us know quite a bit about the Troubles or some more recent stuff with kind of like Brexit and the border and that sort of stuff because we've all had to learn about it because it sucks at the moment. <laughs> but it's all this history is really, really interesting and there's so much there. And it's like, it's our closest neighbour. Weirdly, we, I swear we send, spend more time focusing on France than we do in this island that literally was part of us for so much of our existence and is like right next to us the whole time and is so important to our culture. And yet we just kind of go, nah, the French, we deal with the French. I'll tell you, I'll tell you for why, as they say (laughs) over there. Um, And I listen to, as you listeners probably know, I listen to the Blind Boy podcast every single week. And as he always says, uh, Ireland was the first colony of the British and they were colonising Ireland, if you put it that way, for 800 years. And that's the reason why we don't talk about it in English schools, because it's a stain on our history like the rest of the British Empire. Whereas in France, it's easy to look at France because they've always been the old enemy, in air mm. quotes. They've been the rival. Yeah. So therefore we're even. So everything we do to them is justified. Exactly. Whereas none of the stuff... Oh, I love the fact that we're getting really off to start. Straight away. It's <laughs> hating the British Empire. Oh, <laughs> but... um. But yeah, so we are diving into what is a very, what you could consider is a very crucial moment in Irish history. Although you could also argue it's not. And actually (laughs) it's something that is almost an unnecessary period of violence that actually doesn't do as much as you think. It's a really interesting story because what we're looking at today is the Easter Rising, which takes place in 1916, which if you know history, there's a lot else going on. There's a lot going on, yeah. But this... If you know a bit more of your Irish history, this also comes only a few years before Ireland's War of Independence, when they actually break away from us. So this is like a prelude to it. Mm. Think, if you've seen Les Mis, the the fight in that, because that's not the main where they actually, you know, rebel and kill the king. Yeah. Although they do kill a king. They do kill. They? Yeah, I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> but it's not the big one. Like, it's well, not it's the like main it's one. like in um it's the Russian the, the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, but the Winter Revolution was 1905. And it's had the same impact. 1905, well, I'm not some sort of genius mm. on this, but from what I can tell was just a, a, a march on a palace and then everyone got shot. And then everyone went back to normal for a few years and then the big fuck-off Russian revolution happened 12 years later. Does this feel similar? This is very much like that. This is really a kind of like a starter, an, an entree, you know, a, a canapé to the... <laughs> and a moose-bouche. A moose-bouche to more violence later. Because while this is pretty bloody violent it's still quite contained and still quite small. Like, it's a really awful... It's more of a tragedy than a full all-out war. Yeah. Um, And so you kind of can look at it from that sense. But it's a really interesting... And when we get to the end, we'll kind of... It's fun to think about, like, the meaning or, like, the the, the point of it, which mm. is kind of the same for lots of violence. So it's... it's. I found it very interesting. And I knew very little about it. I think you know a little bit about it. I've got some family history wrapped up in there somewhere, which I will Christ explain I as we go. If you're on the right side of it. <laughs> well, you know, bystanders, mainly. Sure. Mainly. Sure. sure. I, I'll be honest. I'll be honest when we get there. So to kick us off, really, the roots of this uprising that takes place can be kind of traced back to 1798. Although technically, I wow. suppose you could actually trace it back to like 
1200 when when we first started invading Ireland, but we won't go that far back. Mm, 1172, I think, was the first invasion. I have. Was it Henry the Second? 1169. Oh, 1169. Oh, I was three years <laughs> shy. <laughs> suck at this. But no, apparently that's when the first Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland was. So really you could date back, you know, Irish dislike of Britain all the way back to then. But for, you know, to, to speed things up a bit, we'll go through to 1798, which is obviously okay. over 100 years before the Easter Rising even takes place. But the reason I bring this up is because there was another rebellion uh, that was undertaken by a group that were known as the United Irishmen. And they rebelled against British rule. And while they failed, they did enough of a job to trigger what was called the two acts of union and essentially this was the time when ireland joined great britain in the same way that scotland had to be kind of part of this united kingdom okay so they're in the mood for for this kind of unionizing this united kingdom yes very very (laughs) even clearly although actually there's a great story about that because so this is also when it becomes the united kingdom of great britain and ireland it's also when the Union Jack, as we know it, kind of starts to look the the, the correct way. Because ah. this is when they introduce uh, the Cross of St. Patrick. So you have the Cross of St. George and the Cross of St. Andrew, which are the English and Scottish ones. They get brought together. And then when this happens, they bring in the Cross of St. Patrick as a kind of, yeah, air quotes, gesture to Ireland saying you're sure. now part of the team. Yeah, But actually, it's kind of rubbish because... St. Patrick doesn't have a cross because he's not a <laughs> martyr. You have to have a martyr, apparently. Really? Yeah, in order to have like a heraldic cross in dedicated to a saint, they need to be a martyr. Really? I yeah, didn't w- know that. Which I, I didn't know either. I've got an Irish martyr in my family. Really? He's a saint. Yeah. Who? He was called Thomas Plunkett and his head was a relic. Aren't all their bodies like parts of relics that you just... No, no, no. His entire head. His entire his head. His entire head was just was one Was in, relic. I think, Cork Cathedral. Nice. For years. Um, and he was Pretty a ca- Catholic, obviously, who'd mm. had a ch- head chopped off by a prot. Was so. he actually Irish? Because obviously, St. Patrick. St. Patrick was Welsh, I oh, think. Yeah. Like North, North, North Wales is where they assume he came from. Yeah. So no, this guy was Irish, but this was back in the, the 1600s, I think. So it's way later. Well, maybe they should have used him because also. So you don't. So the cross is kind of bollocks. Yeah. And the reason, and actually, the more likely reason they chose it is because that red, it's like an X, and it's got a better name. It's like a surfeit or something, which because it's not a cross is where it's like Di- perpendicular. Yeah, yeah. Not like like a normal cross. Whereas this is obviously more of an X. Yeah. That symbol is actually part of the heraldic arms of the Irish Fitzgerald family, who are a very powerful Irish noble family and who are also very pro-British. Mm. So really, mm. they kind of did it as it's kind of like an anglicised Irish symbol. So it's not really that nice to, to, give it to, to give it to Ireland. No, fair enough. Although I would say to our Northern Irish listeners who are pro-union, it probably stands for a lot more than... The Republican sou- Southerners, just saying. Yes, I think we're going to have to... We won't be able to avoid all the the, yeah, the complexities the, of Northern and Southern we, Ireland. And listen, we, although obviously we have Irish heritage, as certainly Patrick has more than I do, but hmm. we aren't going... We're not taking any sort of sides. We have no... We're not experts at all. No. And, and we see both sides of the argument, and we are totally... You know what I mean? When we're shitting on it, we're shitting on the British, not on the Northern <laughs> Irish or the Southern Irish. We're just keeping it completely kosher, just yes. to say, before it's we get re- atted by it's some... It's really PC to just kind of hate the British Empire, because, you know, they, they did a lot to deserve that feeling. But yeah. what's actually really interesting about this story is you really see how 
kind of there's a lot of awful things going on either side and it's all just and it really just destroys the life of normal people when these kind of things happen and obviously there's reasons behind you know there's this decades or centuries of oppression but this kind of violent acts we'll get into it later because it's really interesting about how this kind of all fits together and the way that violent acts don't really do anything and how other acts can also generate different kind of feelings in people so it's a really interesting story and i think it's how we want to look at history is Mm -hmm. that you know it's easy to kind of look at history and think of good guys versus bad guys and it's never that i don't think there's any instance where there's good guys versus bad guys no i was gonna think of the nazis to be honest (laughs) that's pretty that's pretty good well but then we had if our listeners have have heard the battle of eater castle where there was germans germans uh, not nazis that's true. Well, but they were part of the Nazi party. They weren't SS. I was going to say. But there were German soldiers fighting alongside French and Americans to fight. Look, um, history is grey. Agreed. History is yes. grey, but sometimes it's more grey than other times. To sort of half quote George Orwell there. More grey and then less grey. <laughs> we're all created equal, but some of us are more created more equal than others, which is the scary thing that comes up in Animal Farm. Anyway. Christ, yeah. Deep <laughs> topics. We're getting very off track here. We're but very excited. So, Can you tell how excited <laughs> we are to be back? We're talking really far too quickly. <laughs> Hope it's okay. So you have this rising um, in 1798, mm. and it causes this union together between these two countries, but it's very still very lopsided. In this acts of, acts of union, the Irish Parliament is dissolved in favour of Irish representation in the British Parliament. And the Irish people at the time thought this meant they would get more ability to rule themselves they'd have more influence on this now in burgeoning massive empire but that's not what happened at all realistically they didn't have as much power as they needed and 40 years later the irish famine comes and that yeah. i'm not going to get into too many details about that because it's really long and really complicated really long and really complicated but the essence is for our point of view is that it really highlighted the failures of british policy and the kind of indifference British Parliament had to the plight of the Irish and actually they quite often acted quite cruelly so it really kind of started to build this nationalist you know identity for Ireland to really see themselves apart because they now had really good reason to want to be as far away from Brits as possible. Yeah I agree I think that um, I I studied the family at uni and uh, I think his name was Sir Charles Trevelyan I think his name was and he was the sort of man the evil man sort of Cromwellian man almost who who was responsible for not sending for shipping out Irish produce for mm. the empire when Irish people were starving and the the quote that everyone well the sort of thing that people wrap up about the famine for those of you who don't know is that a million died and a million fled and mm. and the fact is that even in today's Ireland I'm pretty sure no I'm almost certain that the population hasn't returned to pre-famine levels yeah I and think that, that was a I... hundred I don't know if that's and 50 st- years ago. God, if that's still true, that is pretty rough. I'm almost certain it is true. Should we double check? I'll check. <laughs> Has... I'm going to keep this in while you look it up because that's it's fine. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see behind the scenes of us quickly look up our facts Has as we haven't prepared. Ireland. I mean, I did say I'm not going to go into it because it's too long and too complicated. That's kind of covering the fact that I didn't dive too much into it because it's too long and too complicated. <laughs> yeah. But... If you're right, I mean, that's awful if they just haven't come back up to... Ugh, that's... I know. Well, it's something that I'm pretty sure I heard. Uh, Ireland's population have been cut in half to just 4.4 million. Indeed, the population of the island has been on the rise since... It's still short of 7 million, which I think it was 8 million before the famine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's still 7 million people. 
in Ireland, and it was exceeded eight million before the famine. So they there's still a million less up. Irish. That's so insane. If you think the rest of the world, we, you know, all those like population graphs where it fucking skyrockets at the end. Yeah, that is amazing and horrible. The fact that we had such an impact, or Britain had such an impact at that time, to just wreck a country for so long. Yeah. Well, but and then you can kind of see why towards the end of the 19th century. Irish people are really starting to, you know, they want to get rid of uh, the Brits rule. And so this idea of Irish home rule, which is specifically not independence, but the idea of them getting back the ability to self-govern. So it's kind of like almost not quite the Commonwealth, but a bit more of an autonomous colony where they can kind of manage their own affairs and don't let British Parliament dictate exactly how they run because they just had these decades and decades of poor rule mm. and obviously centuries of oppression from the from the british so it's not really the brits have not done a very good job of getting public sympathy in ireland probably because they don't care they they've don't. got many other things to deal with they've got a massive empire and as we get in towards 1914, they're starting to pr- probably get pretty worried about world politics as it's all starting to get well, a little... that's the thing. World War One kicks off. And as you said, Easter Rising is literally two years into World War One, So not a good time to no. start... A, a, well, for the Brits anyway. It's a yeah. perfect time for the Irish to do it when everyone's looking the other way. Well, it's very interesting you say that. And we'll get on to perhaps the reasoning why they chose this <laughs> auspicious date. But before we move on to the uprising itself, it's probably worth kind of giving a bit of an overview of the factions within Ireland because again it's a tendency for like history to kind of homogenize different groups so you sort of think Ireland all of Ireland is rebel against Britain they all hate them but that's not the case at all mm. Ireland at this time as it is as most countries are as most people are are very fractious mm. and there's lots of different factions that are all competing in a broad sense there are mainly two big factions which is obviously the unionists who wanted to stay part of british rule although maybe wanted a bit more autonomy and the nationalists who wanted to split almost entirely but then unionists nationalists got it yes however within the nationalists there is also massive disagreement about what their vision of an independent ireland would look like which is why you had a civil war straight after independence christ yeah yeah this is these are this is the seeds and actually yeah the deciding what your country is going to look like after revolution is quite a big theme throughout the world and actually seems to most revolutions after the fact is lots of people fighting over what they want the country to be because actually most revolutions are formed around the idea of not that mm. rather than this. So after the fact, when you don't know what this is going to be, you all start fighting. It's much it easier. Yeah, it's much easier to be opposed to something than actually come up with proactive ideas of what is afterwards. Exactly, especially as if you're trying to overthrow the yoke of an oppressive regime Mm. you want people on your side and you're not going to ask too many questions about specifically what they want after because then you're not going to knit yourselves together we're very close to talking about brexit we're not going to do (laughs) (laughs) yes avoid at all costs but so the nationalists were disagreeing disagreeing over all sorts of things they didn't agree on whether or not if they did become independent they would keep the king because some of them wanted to kind of be part of like the commonwealth Mm. there was also disagreements on how they would handle the northern part of the country because that was still very pro-union and protestant as well so it always it's a right from this stage and for a lot of ireland's history northern ireland has has kind of had a separate culture and then the unionists there were really worried about if they did become independent as they still are if they became one large ireland what would happen to their culture well yes and also from a financial perspective i think it's the six counties of northern ireland 
are financially much, much more valuable than mm. the Southern Irish, especially at this time that you're talking about, because Belfast was a huge port. Think like yeah. you had the Cunard Line coming out of there. Like Titanic was built in Belfast ports, which was literally famously 19... really successful. Well, yes, but <laughs> a feat of engineering nonetheless. Sure, right? it, sure. it was a symbol of the boom of the top six counties, and the reason they were so different. Just a quick like dive back is the Ulster plantation is where they where King James the first of England way back mm. in the 1600s sent some of the first Scottish Protestant plantation settlers which was basically to sort of colonize Ireland um, and they were all based in the bit which was closest to Scotland so they could get back again and that eventually to sort of cut a long story short they were hardcore Protestants and they remained that ever since so that's why they are their culture was so different from the south. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't actually know because I knew bits of that, but that's that's that gives a lot of context, and it's why it's such an interesting divided country. Mm. And although they ended up being this very forceful divide, it's still complicated and still really tricky to to this day. To this day, yeah. However, on the other side, so you've got all the nationalists, and they're still in fighting. They don't know how to rule. Some of them also like wildly different political regimes so there's some of them that are still capitalist but they're becoming socialist and communist which is something that's sweeping all over europe at this time oh yeah so the red way so there's really this idea of what's the country going to be and there's probably a bit of like we want to be just different to britain but then there's yeah. others that are like well we don't like communism either like so it, it's it's all these disparate groups that need to come together and as you say it means after the fact they're not going to agree which is not a recipe for success but it's also complicated on the unionist side. So there's still disagreements about how they want to kind of, whether they want to be peaceful or whether they think that more, you know, imposing laws from Britain is needed to keep these nationalists in check. They also start to get quite worried uh, in this regard about, you know, the nationalists. So they form a paramilitary organization called the Ulster Volunteer Forces. And this is so effective and they're so wide that it very quickly grows to 100,000 members. Mm. And then obviously not to be outdone, the nationalists decide we need a paramilitary organization. So they form the Irish Volunteers. So you have the UVF and the IRA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although not the IRA quite yet. That's much later. But No, but the, the proto before they became those two things. Oh, see, there's... It, it, there's it's, going to be it's a, infinitesimal how there's how going to be a lot more is. names to different groups because yeah. it is really complicated i'll try and keep it as clear as possible but yeah so you've got i mean the ulster volunteer forces they're not going to be too important to the story but the irish volunteers this is the kind of group that at this time are really forming together as a militia who are ready-made to throw over british rule that is what they're kind of focused on and there's some important players that uh, i'll get to in a bit that are kind of not quite puppeting the but backing them and pushing them uh, in the directions that they want. So you've got this really tense time and you now have these two massive forces in uh, Ireland, in the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland between nationalists and unionists. And in all other kind of instances, they'd be barreling towards civil war. And that's kind of what they're on the brink of. But then some dude half a world away shoots an archduke and World War One kicks off, which yeah. throws everything up in the air and kind of puts the civil war on pause. Well, this is the thing. It's the same with um, the march of the suffragettes, women's suffrage in the, in this country. It's the same thing. They were all, they were letterboxing Lloyd George with letter bombs and things like that. And then World War One came around and everyone went, no, we've got to pull together. And yeah. then that's literally what they did. Lots of Irish went, oh, no, no, wait, I'm thinking of World War Two. I was going to say Oh, no, you're not. I, I think you're right here. Lots of Irish nationalists and unionists signed up to fight for World War One, So they right. signed up for the British Army. 
particularly the Ulster Volunteer Forces. So they sign up in droves and actually form, I think, multiple full battalions part of the British Army. Even nationalists, though, they might hate the British Empire, but they want to kind of fight against this imposing German threat. They're worried and they've got other Irish people. They know the importance of this war and they feel like it's it's their duty to go and go, go and help. So lots of people start joining up. And you'd think that this kind of puts a pause on everything. But there are some nationalists who don't shift focus. Of course. And there are, as you said, some nationalists that notice Britain is now looking the other way. Yeah. Wouldn't this be a perfect time for an uprising? I mean, I don't blame them. It is the best time. I mean, it's 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 maybe a little morally tricky, but I mean, go for it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's very tricky because you've now got this army you're setting up to, to fight against is now being filled out by your countrymen and not just the unionists who a lot of the nationalists absolutely hate and think are traitors to Ireland but there's also nationalists signing up yeah which is quite it's murky but this is the thing civil war is murky Ugh, yeah yeah it's it's rough so we're still in 1914 world war one has kicked off okay you've got these droves of unionist soldiers shipping off to fight I was going to say fight the Hun, but that's a really <laughs> fight word. the Hun. That's you such sound like an old-fashioned thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like clipped like, voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do your thing for your country. That is exactly what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you still have some nationalists at home that are now kind of thinking, "This is our moment." And there's a few key players in this. So one of these people who are kind of moving and shaking and starting to move things along in terms of the nationalist movement is a woman called Countess Markovic who is actually the first woman elected to British Parliament. Yeah. Which is really interesting. But she's also Irish and a nationalist, which is a really interesting first first woman in, in, in the Houses of Parliament. And she's kind of anti-British. Well, this is the thing. I don't think she ever actually takes her seat in Parliament. Because really? in protest, oh, she's like, oh, fuck yeah. you. I'm not going to sit in there. I just rep- represent my people. It's like mm. the Sinn Féin don't sit in um, the House of Commons to this yes. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of, it's yeah. still it's still very resistant to it. Yeah. Well, she in uh, 1914 is helping to smuggle guns into Dublin. So in one operation, she smuggles 1,500 rifles into Dublin to arm the nationalist militia. And the other group that are really important to our story is a, and I love whenever these come into any of our stories because they are a secret cabal of Ooh, individuals, okay, known as the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IR. The IRB, okay. And they're like oath-bound and like a fraternal... I'm imagining like they have robes and it's very like Masonic and that kind of thing. But they're Irish nationalists who have been around for about 50 years at this point. And it is their like sworn duty to create the Irish Republic. That is what that's all they want to do. And they have been the ones who have kind of been pushing the nationalist movement. They're not in control of the Irish volunteers, but they are their main backers. And they do have their like claws in them they can manipulate them to a certain degree so they're kind of this backroom powerhouse smoke and mirrors things yeah that kind of thing it's interesting that they are they're following an irish tradition there because go back a hundred years or maybe a bit more you had the uh, dublin hellfire club which was Mm. a group of secretive men who would meet up and worship the devil and drink and have orgies and stuff, which is obviously very different to what the IRB are doing. I think doing. these guys are a bit more Catholic. But I meant, I, I meant more that they these secret societies. Dublin has a history of that. Mm. So it fits in very well with their own culture. Absolutely. And there's always these... I mean, there's so many factions in this, and I'm not even done, because there was another secretive faction within this secretive faction. So the IRB 
at this point in time don't think the time is right for a rebellion. Right. They want to wait for a better time. Some of them possibly also don't want to be doing it during a world war. Sure. But there is another group within the IRB known as the Military Council who are secretly planning an uprising. So ah. they're kind of like they consider themselves the military wing of the IRB and are just going, well, we'll not tell the rest of them because the supreme leaders of the IRB wouldn't like wouldn't it. like this. So we're just going to plan a rebellion. So on completely the side. on the side without the countess, Com- yeah, as well, yeah. just everything. Just yeah. were, these was... these guys are the main driving force for this uprising because okay. most other people aren't that bothered about it. They're like, they, this might be something we want to do at some point. We need to arm ourselves. We need to be ready. But these guys are like, no, we're doing this uprising. That's really interesting because, as we mentioned sort of at the beginning about how it, you know, it wasn't like the big one which came a little later. Mm. The fact that they did it without the backing of the IRB, it says a lot about why it maybe not, I don't spoil what I know is coming, but like (laughs) it might not have worked so well because they didn't have the backing. Yeah, I I imagine their idea is that if we can get things going, we will push our comrades, we will push our fellows too far to the point where they can't go back. We have to fight. We'll push it to the point where there is no other option other than complete surrender or siding with the British mm. or going full-out war, full-out uprising. Sure, That's sure, where sure. they want to They want to push. I don't think they're like traitors. They just think that the IRB and the Irish Volunteers and the Russell Nationalists aren't going far enough. Yeah. So this small the military the spear, council... Basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And or, they want to make the first move. Yes. They they want to press they want to pressure everyone else to start fight. action. Okay. Okay. I see. So yeah, it's just factions within factions within factions. It's really complicated. But I think we that's like kind of the final. Got it. We've, that's we've the got... final. So there's the yeah, so there's Ireland. Yeah. Then there's the nationalists. Right. Yeah. Then there's the Irish volunteers. Gotcha. Then there's the IRB kind of controlling the nationalists. Yeah, like the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then within the U- Illuminati there was a secret sect within them called the Military Council who were pushing the IRB to push to the, Brit- the They, they want to be the first domino that sets off the whole thing. There gotcha. we go. Gotcha. All right. Hopefully that's clear enough. Yeah. So You've got all these people kind of raring for a fight, but obviously they are still looking at a pretty massive undertaking because while Britain is distracted, it is still a global superpower with one of the largest military apparatus in the world at this point, and it's overwhelming odds against them. Mm. So this is where I found this story really interesting because the IRB decide we need some help. We need some backing. We need some bigger players. We need some foreign help. Yeah. And who do they go to? Germany. They go no to. They, way. they want to court the Kaiser because enemy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You're kidding. How mad is that? This, so they were in, in talks with the Kaiser. Yes. That's news to me. I did not know that. So still in 1914, the Irish nationalist and he's actually the former British diplomatic consul. Is that how you say it? Yeah. The former British diplomatic consul, Sir Roger Casement, sails to New York. Oh, Sir <laughs> Roger Casement. Uh, well, Blind Boy talks about him a lot. I just yeah. haven't looked him up. He's quite an interesting he's guy. He's a hero. He's he's a really crazy guy because he did this whole, like, I was going to say expose. That's probably, like, investigation into, I think, the Congo. Like, that's he's done right, loads he of, did. like, humanitarian stuff. Yeah, he brought stuff. the Congo stuff. That's that's why that he's really He's about. a really interesting guy, but he is Irish and becomes, like, disillusioned by the British state and that's who he's been working for switches to kind of the nationalist side and decides that he wants to be that kind of forefront he's not strictly part of the irb but he's working with them 
to build this kind of alliance with Germany because they are seen as this kind of superpower. They're also kind of courting the Americans. That's what point, I thought you were going to say. Well, the Americans, because they're not really involved. And no. America at this time kind of wants to be the diplomat. They want to be the middleman between you know, all these different powers. And so they sail to New York into uh, to meet with um, a German ambassador, a German ambassador named Count Bernstoff. Okay. And they meet in New York, where obviously there's a huge Irish population. There's actually a version of the IRB in New York as well. Yeah. Because there's lots of Irish people in New York. There's Boston, lots of people in, yeah, New there's York, lots of, lots of Irish people points. in America trying to push around their weight as well. Yeah. So it makes sense to kind of do it there. It's kind of foreign soil, kind of even ground, but the Irish feel a bit more comfortable because Hugely. there's more of them yeah, yeah, around. Yeah. And if this had been successful, the ultimate goal of... Uh, what's it called? Saraja and the German ambassador would be to supply all of Ireland with German weapons and for German soldiers to possibly land in the west coast of Ireland and kind of start possibly a new front of the war behind Britain, which would have been but possibly war-ending. It's just... That, that, that seems so... I feel... I mix emotions about that because... Fuck you, you, you talking to the Germans. You shouldn't feel betrayed, though, because it's the British Empire. Like, that's the well, thing. Like, no, I know, but, like, you know, imagine if your brother was a, a soldier fighting against the Germans, mm. and then you're in this war camps, or the military camp. What was it called? The military... The military council. The military council. Mm. And you're advocating for German soldiers who might be killing your brother to come onto Irish soil to take... out. You know what I mean? It's, that is difficult. It's insane. And actually, you know what it reminds me of? It's quite like the... What's it called? The old alliance, the Scotland and France... It's England having to deal with this massive enemy and then one of its neighbours decides to ally with with its enemy to kind of screw it over. It's not quite as intense as that. And also, yeah, and this is extra layer, the fact that there is all these Irishmen who have gone over to fight the Germans. Exactly, that's the difference. But you're right, the old alliance is similar. And you know what's even more interesting? This isn't even the only British revolt that Germany has a hand in. There was another conspiracy, which I won't go into too much detail, across the world there is a German and Indian conspiracy to form a revolution against the British Raj. That one I did know. And this is happening at the same time. Okay. And there's some evidence to say Saraja is kind of not necessarily helping in that regard, but it's the same kind of circles. Mm. So Germany is really trying to get all of these colonies of the British Empire to rebel because obviously it divides their attention yeah. and that it's an easier... And if they can create a new front in Ireland, that's even better. I just, I'm just surprised of all the people you could go to, you go to the Kaiser. Like, why don't you just go to the US? I mean, the US is full of Irish people. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you but know what I mean? maybe, but like, and also, conveniently, it's have, on the West Coast. You would have to convince America to start a war with England. Oh, I suppose Germany's, Germany's already, already at war. Already at war. Yeah, it, kind, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know. And it's like, they have a reason. It's a, it's a quid pro quo. They have a reason to offer Germany something because they can say, you can start a war, you can invade Britain from our shores so long as you let it let us take it over yeah yeah, yeah. so there's a, okay. there's a it makes sense i see it i see it um however neither of these alliances succeeded briefly the indo-german conspiracy was apparently undone by british intelligence they mm. just managed to figure out what was going on and arrest all the leaders so that ended rather sadly the irish german conspiracy also failed but for a few other kind of idiotic reasons just as you said the Irish weren't that happy about this. So Sir Roger actually sailed to Berlin. He, his plan was to form an Irish brigade within the German army from 
Irish POWs. So what? German, a German POW camp had all these, had about 2,000, there was a number of different places he went to. One of them had about 2,000 Irish soldiers who had been captured. He went there and said, I'm going to start an Irish brigade. Join me, we'll join the Germans and then go fight Britain. And thought that was a good idea. I mean, I guess maybe he thought that he could, because there's obviously a lot of nationalists there. Bizarre. But it did not go well at all. Supposedly, he was chased out by one of the camps from the Irish, because they just thought it was the most despicable thing. Yeah. And then in one place, uh, the only the only place he managed to get anyone, there was about 2,000 Irish POWs. He only got 52 to join up. So not very convincing. Maybe managed to convince some of them, possibly the most nationalist of them. Well, and definitely the, ones that the most to go nationalist, home. clearly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also... A lot of those Irish people would have been worried about being hanged for treason because this is really Absolutely. aggressive. And you know, these are soldiers they've lived and and died by. They've they would have, you know, their fellow soldiers died at German hands, and now some guys rocking up and saying, "Let's join Germany." Well, this is the thing, especially in World War One. If you were in the trenches and you ran the other way, as in away from the enemy, your officer was entitled to shoot you for treason. Yeah, it's pretty intense, isn't it? And that's for the Brits, not just the Irish. You mm. know what I mean? Like, so we're living in a world of proper capital punishment. Yeah, still very much alive and well. It's kind of still mostly medieval thinking, but with yeah, industrial yeah. warfare. Exactly. Like it's not. We haven't moved on. Like it, it's still I mean, really I, aggressive. I know people like to think it's a bit too broad brush, and more people did die in the Second World War. But to be honest, I couldn't think of anything worse in history than the First World War to actually live through, except possibly the plague. Plague would be pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. COVID was also pretty bad, but you know. Oh, don't joke. <laughs> <laughs> but so that this kind of alliance starts to fall apart at that point. And to make matters worse, another big part of the, the negotiations is getting weapons from the Germans. Okay. However... Who didn't really have them to spare, surely. Exactly. So Sir Roger get, ends up having to go back to Ireland with a tiny fraction of the number of weapons he was promised when okay. in the initial discussions. This still would be a huge boon because it's still a lot of a lot of weapons and arms and ammunition to bring back to the rebels but on his way back or actually on the ammunition's way back a german captain who was captain of the ss libel he was in charge of transporting these weapons and ammunition back to ireland and he makes it all the way back to ireland he's uh, they're pretending to be a norwegian vessel right they get within eyesight of oh, the no. irish coast and i don't know if he suddenly realized this or thought it would be okay but he's two days early He's two days early for the drop-off, and there were no nationalists on the shore helping him figure out where to land, where he can oh, unload the no. stuff. So he doesn't really know what to do, and then he realizes how screwed he is when a trio of British destroyers appears on the horizon, Shit. going straight after him. And, and he's carrying explosives, he's carrying, basically. He's carrying explosives, he's carrying weapons. He's basically, oh, they're shit. Germans stuck in the water. So instead of risking getting caught, he scuttles the ship and all no. the, these weapons that were, have been two years in the making from Sir, all of Sir Roger's efforts have sailed all the way from Germany, all the way, are in sight, in, or in, like, <laughs> sight of Ireland and they sink to the bottom of the Irish Sea. Oh my God, that's so bad. This is the thing. History is made up of, of human mistakes. I mean, think about the gunpowder plot. Yeah. If they'd just done that slightly better, we'd have a very different world. For I you. mean, arriving two days too early yeah. is just ridiculous and then maybe 
actually having those weapons could have turned a tide, which, I won't, you know, spoilers, but yeah, it could have done a lot of good. Yeah, let's be honest, it fails. But yeah. it doesn't, it could have not failed, maybe if they had all these weapons, mm, maybe. Mm. And maybe if Sir Roger was out and about and he could have recovered something, but he gets dropped up by a U-boat and is arrested immediately. Who is, sorry? The, the captain? Sir Roger. Oh, Sir Roger's on that ship as well? No, he's on a separate boat and they just randomly drop him off. It, from what I can tell, it wasn't intentional. Like, they just went, oh, we're done okay. with this. You get off here. You're now in Ireland. Yeah. And he's immediately arrested oh, by just dear. a police officer. So the German alliance is fallen, has completely fallen apart. And things aren't going well in Dublin either. The military council are still carrying out their secret plans. However, they are... Having to hide all of this, you know, cloak and dagger, to use a better <laughs> word, um, from the British, obviously, but also from their fellow IRB members. Yeah. But things are starting to get out. One of the things the military currency do to try and galvanize support amongst the nationalists is they release a forged document that suggests that the British are about to arrest a whole bunch of nationalist leaders and execute Ooh. them. And obviously being nationalist isn't illegal. You can be a nationalist leader. There's lots of members of parliament that are, well, the Irish members of parliament, a lot of them are nationalist. But this is obviously a real overstep and something to... That, you know, that, that'll do it. I mean, that'll piss people off. Imagine it, if Boris started saying that I'm going to arrest, you know, Angela Rayner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would, that would get me fired. That would get everyone think, on yeah, the streets. Yeah. yeah, It'd be weird if Boris did it now. But Yeah, yeah well, sorry. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and then the other part of this, because oh, the other thing is also that is forged. Like they, they're making this up. Mm -hmm. But the other part of this is that Fake after news. that, after they've kind of galvanized support, they then inform the Irish volunteers that they want to trigger an uprising on Easter Sunday. They have this plan. They're oh. going to base it around. For some reason, there's a lot. Easter tends to be a quite a bloody day. We've had a lot. Of, we've had a lot of stories where a violent thing has happened in Easter. But also, it's rebirth in in it's Christianity. Rebirth. I think lots of people like that. Like the idea is that this is the moment where we take control. We form a new world. That's yeah. the kind of idea. So it makes sense why they'd want to do it. I guess it's the other thing is maybe people are distracted. Also, lots of people in the same place. I'm just thinking of the Medici's. That's kind of make you know, uh, yeah, that's so time, true. Was that Easter? Was that Easter Sunday? That's Easter Sunday, I think, or Good Friday, or for or those something for those Easter. listeners who've been with us for a very long time, uh, we didn't. Well, Patrick did an episode about how the Medici, uh, one of the Medici's, was assassinated in an the Duomo. Yeah, an attempted assassination of well Lorenzo de Medici, but they failed at that. But they did kill his brother. They killed his brother. Yeah, and, and it then, just went disastrously wrong. I just remember one of the bishops who was, I think, it was the Archbishop of Pisa, running headlong into basically a cupboard and, and getting locked, locked in, in yeah, and then the, he got the, hanged the, the guy the gonfalonero just locked him in a room yeah and just went and completely neutralized him and then the soldiers he was leading just left he was like follow me men and they run into a room lock the door and go yep now you're done really really dumb <laughs> i don't think there's anything quite as dumb in this but it's also no, it's you know, much more sad when it's nearer to our current nearer day. to us and it is this is a very sad story i mean that was just a bunch of rich, rich blokes killing each other like yeah you know, boohoo Whereas this is really bad. This is a lot of... I mean, I probably shouldn't say that. but like, this No, is, no, no. But I, I know what you mean. This, really, is, this is hard. A, a, a tragic... It's a great first episode, but it's, it's interesting. I was going to say, you really pick them. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the uh, military council. They have these plans for the Easter Rising. However, the other members of the IRB are starting to catch wind. One of them being a man named Owen McNeil. Did you, you're just laughing because I said wind. <laughs> he said catching wind. You just said catching wind. Is that not, not breaking wind. I, I don't but know. Catching wind is like the, the phrase. It is. It is. I'm just. Uh, I'm a child. I've been very, child. very distracted. He started breaking wind. This is a really. Wind. This is a really tragic moment, and you're really. <laughs> I'm a terrible human. I'm so sorry. So Owen McNeil catches wind. Stop it. 
he hears about what the military council are doing and after he hears about that and after he hears about the german boat sinking with all their weapons mm. he orders a countermand order to oh. tell the irish volunteers stop listening to the irish council well, sorry the irish council stop listening to the military council we're not doing anything on easter sunday so the irish volunteers now have two orders oh they for have god's sake from the military council to start a revolution on sunday and another dude saying don't which is a it, great way to kick off a rebellion. It sounds, you could almost, if it wasn't so sad, it's comical that you can just imagine if you are an, an Irish volunteer and you're just like, should I go out today on Easter yeah. Sunday and, <laughs> and and rest the control away from the British or should I stay in and, have, stay in and have a tea? roast lamb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a big decision and they really don't know what to do. And it seems like it's really just like split down, you know, who you are you know are you more loyal are you a more are you a more militant nationalist who kind of agrees with the, what the military council are doing are you more you know peaceful are you more trying to like more moderate so it's like but each, also each it's who, is making a decision for themselves you might not n- have heard both orders you might not have heard both orders because dissemination you don't, you of information don't know if either of them are, are real they could be lies like what if it was a british plot to oust the, exactly. the thing speaking of the british sh- what the fuck were they doing so this is What's it's it's quite it, you'll realize that it's quite it's quite sad. There's a, there's this general perception that the British knew all of this was going on, that they uh. those those trio of warships that took down the German vessel that wasn't an accident. They knew what that was. They also arrested uh, Sir Casement. Roger yeah. straight away. Uh, supposedly there was lots of leaks, and British intelligence knew just like they did with the Indo-German conspiracy over in india mm. british intelligence knew a lot what was going on and supposedly also american intelligence was also helping them which is interesting to find out given the fact that america was kind of playing a bit of a Both sides. you know a middleman but actually they didn't want perhaps later in the you know as the years had gone on they didn't want britain to lose they were closer with britain and so there was a kind of intelligence sharing so the idea is that the british kind of knew what was going on and didn't really care about stopping it because a uprising is a really good excuse to crack down on an entire nation. And nationalists are really gaining momentum. So this, and this is pure speculation, and it's what some historians believe, but there's no real evidence for it. But that the British knew what was going on, possibly even helped the oh, uprising I bet, along. Because yeah. it is, and it makes sense, you know, they want to give an excuse to kind of crack down on this, because this could grow into something worse. And this does seem to be coming together in a really terrible way. It's being rushed. You know, there's different factions that are all fighting. There's, it's it's chaos, this revolt. So maybe the British were kind of involved. Mm. I like to think of that in my head canon, mainly because I think the British are, are very sneaky. and, and Well, they're, they're, they're something they're good at is intelligence, or at least they pretend to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. They always have been. I mean, maybe this is also propaganda from the British many years on to make so, them oh, seem more impressive we than they yes. were. It's like, we didn't drop the ball. Because fr- from the outset, it does seem like they were kind of caught off guard. And actually, they really just succeeded because of a very, of the kind of fractious nature of the Irish the volunteers. Mess, but... Yeah, the mess that this started with. Because, yeah, this is a really bad way to start a revolution. Because also, doing it in Dublin, like urban warfare, as you can see in, in Ukraine and everything, mm. it's the worst type of fighting because it's house mm. to house. It's very personal. It's very hard to conduct a war for both sides. Mm. I do know, am I right in saying that the British headquarters in Dublin was Dublin Castle? Yes. Yeah, so Dublin Castle is their kind of main headquarters in, in Dublin. They aren't 
they don't have a huge presence there because obviously they are busy fighting another war. Yeah. So they are a bit caught off guard. Before we get to that, so Easter Sunday rolls around, no one else to do. Luckily, the military council meet up in the morning and decide this is all a bit chaotic. Let's delay it a day. Let's make this the Easter Monday rising. Okay. It's all the Easter rising, you know. It's, it's Does so he they rise on the Monday. He dies on the Friday, Good Friday. Three days later, he's risen. So why do we have Easter Monday? Easter Monday. Wait, have I just done the math well, wrong it, it, again? Friday. Wait, Good Friday. Yeah, no, Monday's Sunday, the Monday. Rise, so he's yeah. rising. So that makes... That's good. It does yeah. make sense. But why is Easter sense. Sunday such a big one then? Well, it's just because that's, that's God's day in and around Easter. Okay. It's also like, I think it's just nowadays because we're busy on the Monday. <laughs> I imagine is the, is the main thing. It's as pragmatic as that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, no, and you know, this is going to be, I mean, it's already, you know, they've already got so many things going wrong. They can't the stop now. And also, but now they're starting on a Monday and, you know, rush hour, people Start of the busy, week. You know, yeah, it's yeah. chaos. So, yeah. so it's still not going well, but they decide to do this. They kind of bring all this dis- these, these disparate groups together and there's a bit more of a focus. There's still some people who aren't really sure what they're doing, but they kind of come together on Easter Sunday and decide, right, tomorrow is going to be the day. They kind of unite as a larger party and they actually sort of launch this new nation and they do it by a few different ways but primarily they pick uh some leaders and there's two main leaders we'll talk about a socialist revolutionary by the name james Connolly. he was named commandant of the dublin brigade so kind of the chief military person sure and then an irish school teacher called patrick henry pierce was named president and commander-in-chief of the new irish republic I see. Okay. It wasn't called the New Irish. It, I'm just yeah, yeah. Small, okay, yeah I get it. The Irish not, Republic. It's not like Star Wars, where it's the New Republic. It's <laughs> the Irish Republic. I just I said it when I said that. I said that sounds super sci-fi. The New Irish Republic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so you've got these two figureheads, and they are Patrick Henry Pierce is has been part of the military council, so he's really a kind of forward-thinking. Yeah, yeah. And James Connolly is actually the leader of another faction who were known as the Irish Citizen Army, who were just another militant group, kind of similar to the Irish Volunteers, a bit smaller, and they were planning to just do a, a uprising on their own. And the military council went, whoa, 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 join us. Like, we're the bigger one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, let's, let's coordinate God, it It's here. so complex. There's so many factions. So, Easter Monday, 24th of April, 1916. This is the day of the uprising. And the people of Dublin awake to the sound of marching boots as a column of armed Irish citizens mark, mark, march up Sackville Street with James Connolly and Patrick Henry Pierce at the head. And they are heading towards the General Post Office, which is where this revolution is going to begin. Cool. Do you know why they went to the General Post Office? I only found this out literally yesterday. Really? I, I, I didn't know. Why. I assumed it's just a big building. Because that's where the Telegraph HQ was. Ah, so if they can knock out the comms, then the Brits in London wouldn't know. Smart. I Smart. Yeah, again, blind boy. <laughs> I was thinking it's like to stop them sending off letters. But that's not a really, <laughs> it's not a very speedy way to, to, <laughs> to get reinforcements. No. So well, there you go. So they are marching up the street. There are other groups of the Irish volunteers throughout the city getting ready to attack other key important buildings across Dublin. But the General Post Office is their first main goal, and they quickly take it over and turn it into their headquarters. So they fill it with ammunition, they start setting up medical tents, they really use this as their main headquarters. 
and once that's done, Pierce re-emerges and reads out a proclamation from the military council to the rather startled Dublin citizens. And I won't go through it all because it's quite long, but essentially informing the Dublin citizens that a armed uprising has begun and they are forming the new Irish Republic. I said it again. The Irish Republic. <laughs> so okay. I did, he probably wouldn't say because also the new makes it sound like it would have been an old Irish Republic, which doesn't make sense. They are forming the Irish Republic. Sure. Gotcha. So, and there's a whole bunch of other things they're saying. And actually, there's a bit of disagreement about what they say. And it seems like even the proclamation had arguments about what was going to be in it. So it's not, I mean, which I guess is quite common for a new it's country. It's messy. To, yeah. yeah, yeah. Democracy is not easy. So this is them kicking off. And they, as I said, they also try to seize uh, a bunch of other buildings. Some of the ones they do get are the South Dublin Union, the Northumberland Hotel, the Boland's Mill, the Dublin City Hall, the Four Courts Courthouse, which I've actually been to. I've been to a lot of these, but I remember the Four Courts Courthouse. And then best of all, they also take Jacob's Biscuit Factory. <laughs> I thought you which... said best of all there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jacob's Biscuit Factory, as in like for the crackers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. Because, you know, they've got to they've feed themselves somehow. Yeah. I don't know if that's why they did it. but presumably... Although, it, I mean, although that's... A, you Big know, warehouse, lots there's of trucks. There's a lot, there's a lot of Biscuits. Buildings. It's really important. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at that list and a lot of them are really big. Like a hotel, you can imagine actually being great for defensible. Like it's yeah. large. It's probably in a very important place. It's very tall. So, you know, they're picking locations where they can set up a kind of resistance because that's their first goal is to kind of, they haven't, they don't really encounter much resistance. There is kind of sporadic British presence there. But other than a couple of skirmishes, they basically retreat and just, you know, let them go back over. to Dublin Castle and wait. Basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dublin Castle is the one place because they can't capture. So that it's it's a real kind of mess up from the Irish volunteers. They go to um, Dublin Castle and there's actually a guy called Sean Connolly. He's mm. not related or at least not directly related to James Connolly, the leader. And he gets it. It gets into a shootout with a police officer outside Dublin Castle. He shoots the police officer, but in the kind of kerfuffle or the the shootout other people within the castle realize and they're able to close and lock the gate and they keep dublin castle completely protected they aren't able to get in and i think probably once they realize they can't get in straight away they're not attacking it's a castle they're not there for a siege literally the most defensible building in the city if they had managed to just get in and hold the door open they've taken it but unfortunately they probably had a, a lot more chance of succeeding in taking Dublin, yeah. if they kept captured the castle. It's a really big deal. It's a really strong strategic point, which they don't get. And then it gives a perfect place for the British when they start come to around. Defend, yeah. They've got now this place to, to head to for our headquarters. So across the rest of the city, other of others of the other Irish volunteers are taking over smaller buildings, setting up barricades, uh, you know, stockpiling weapons setting up medical tents and, you know, supply lines. They are preparing for the retaliation. This wasn't the big step. Taking Dublin was actually rather easy. It's holding it for the inevitable British retaliation. And to get the message out as well, presumably. Yes. So this is the other big part, is that at this point they are now... That proclamation was the start of it, but there are other proclamations and they are speaking to the the Dublin citizens and kind of sending it out across Ireland that... This is now the time. This is our time. Everyone to else ourselves. needs to rise up. They need everyone else to do this. That's the only way this really works. So they really, they, you know, it's a kind of strong show of force by taking over these really key important places. Not that great that we, they lost, that they didn't get Dublin Castle. But, you know, there's enough there that they can start to kind of build a base from. And if they can get the Irish people behind them, hmm. they should be a, in a really great spot. I mean, they're mad, but good for them. Yes. 
So night falls over Dublin on the first day. There's only been a couple of skirmishes, been very little, and it's weirdly quiet, actually. It's almost like Dublin's, nothing's really happened yet. They're bracing. It is the quiet before the storm. Yeah. So to give a rough idea of strength, so there's about 1,250 of the Irish volunteers in okay. Dublin. There are about two to 3,000 volunteers elsewhere, but there wasn't that much fighting other than in Dublin. So sure. it's about you know, 1,250 Irish volunteers. By the end of things, there's about 16,000 British troops. Blooming Nora. So that's massively outnumbered. That's not straight away. At, right at the beginning, there's probably about 1,000. And as I say, they kind of fall back. They don't really know what's going on. And so they're not really willing to stick their neck out. You know, they want to wait for reinforcements, wait for orders. If you were a British officer or even a soldier, you would, I think, be terrified. If you fire the first shot, mm. then the all those Dubliners who are in their houses cowering turn around and go, you're shooting my, my son. Yeah. You could spark a revolution accidentally yeah, going the, the other way. The uprising is on a knife edge of... Because it really Will does they, all they, come, Will they, it comes they. down to what are the people going to do. Exactly. It's about Again, the... that's what happens in Les Mis. Like it's like the, the, <laughs> the, the, the people didn't rise. Stop trying thing. to yeah. make this about about the musical. <laughs> there should be a musical about this. Um so yeah, so that's that's where we're at on the evening of Easter Monday in Dublin. Okay. The next day is when things kick off. As I said, the British did kind of know this was coming. And there's a suggestion that they even let it happen. So they are weirdly still quite slow to respond. Maybe they just didn't really care that much. And maybe they didn't really expect it to be quite as big. But once they do, they respond in force. Mm. So British Army Senior Commander Brigadier General William Lowe, which is there another? No, how? How you're thinking the Howe brothers? Howe brothers from from literally from the, the American, American Revolution. Revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had Admiral Howe and General Howe, and they. I think were... one of them was William Howe as well. Yes, Richard it was. and William Howe. So this is Brigadier General William Lowe. <laughs> Great English names. Literally one letter different. So yeah, so he's in command of the British forces, and he takes personal control. So he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help plan this out. And the main things he does is he calls for reinforcements from across Ireland and the British mainland. So he's very quick to. This isn't something I can just handle out of hand. You know, they think, okay, we need everyone in here. They And he orders counterattacks to all the positions within the city. So straight away, one day in, all of these positions that the Irish volunteers are now coming under attack from British troops arriving into the city. Unfortunately, the Irish volunteers didn't do a great job of securing the city in a lot of ways that maybe more military-minded commanders would think. Sure. They didn't take the dock. And they didn't take the train station. Oh, for God's sake. I think sake. it mostly blew up part of the train station because actually uh, William Howe... William, William Howe, I'm going to say that wrong every time. <laughs> William Lowe sends in a armoured train to go along the track and then fix part of the rail. Sure. Um, which I don't know if you've ever seen the World War One armoured they're, they're fucking insane. They they're are. really terrifying. They're like doom machines yeah. from Mad Max. Like you just send them at someone, they'll fly into. But yeah, so... And there's this kind of like... There's a bit of a battle between the Irish volunteers trying to... And actually, they hold back the trained for a little bit but arguably they haven't done a very good job of preventing british reinforcements from getting in they're kind of just relying on the fact that they can hold out within the city yeah and they also are relying on something a kind of theory about the way the british are going to act and it's a bit like something that you said earlier about why would they do it in dublin city they are under the impression that the british army will not use artillery inside a city oh dear 
so James Connolly, sorry, so James Connolly, who, if you remember, I said was a socialist, he supposedly said a capitalist government would never destroy property. He is wrong. And they bring in artillery on day one. And it's awful. Well, there's a couple of things to say to that. First of all, as you said earlier, Belfast was the financial capital. They're probably not that bothered about Dublin. Not giving a fuck about Dublin. Mm. And the other thing is that literally, I don't know why this has come to me, but the British bombed a city of Copenhagen in literally 100 years earlier simply because they wanted their ships to stop Napoleon taking them. So they bombed a city yeah. with firebombs, which they, they wanted to try out. Just so they could get the ships. They wanted to try it out. They had a new toy. They wanted to but see how it But this is the point. Literally. We've all played a video game history. where you get a gun and you want to use it. History repeating itself. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's terrible. It, it honestly does not surprise me at all. Yeah. So these are the, you know, these massive artillery guns are brought in. These are the same, you know, types of artillery that are currently being used on the Western Front to fight Germany are now opening fire at a city full of civilians. And the Irish volunteers freak out they did not expect this and they so it's immediately just fired upon one of their positions which is in a pretty civilian area and they flee immediately because this was something they weren't expecting they thought they almost could hide within the city and it forces the british soldiers to come in and as you say it's close quarters street to street fighting and if they're in entrenched positions that's quite strong for them but not against artillery yeah, in some ways, whilst it is clever to maybe start an uprising in the middle of a war, it's also really stupid because there's been an arms race for the past 10 years. So yeah. there's more there's more ammunition and military personnel and equipment in, in, in Britain probably than any other time in its history. Yeah. Not and, to be callous, it's just true. And Ireland failed or the, these these nationalists failed to get their own firepower you know the german mm. the german the german alliance failed but they maybe the brits were resist. if the intelligence services were in, were hamstringing that whole effort it might have been i'd love too. to know I, I i don't think i wonder if they've released there, there might still be documentation it's just it has not been released yet yeah i'd imagine well because it's a very dicey a subject. subject you know it's still very tenuous about our relationship with ireland so i imagine they wouldn't want to release this kind of so stuff it's either been burned or be left in a box for another 200 years yeah i mean yeah i think yeah i'd argue there probably was a lot of stuff and actually it probably vanished at the end of this shockingly so mm. the uprising proceeds okay and it is six days of hell dublin is really shook from this entire affair literally <laughs> literally from the artillery the volunteers really fight the british kind of street to street what they also discover is that, and as we were saying, this revolution is on a knife edge depending on what the citizens of Dublin do, what the Irish people, civilians will do. And they do not rise to the moment. They apparently had very little little knowledge of that this was going on. They were kind of taken surprise as much as the, as much as the British were. And while there were more kind of impassionate pleas from Pierce and then the other nationalist leaders... No, almost no of none of the british sorry almost none of the dublin the dublin citizenry yeah none of them join none of them really and actually some of them start helping the british yeah because, because it's the status quo the status quo they are seeing this like violence happen on their streets in the they, middle of a war in the middle of a war where lots of their soldiers and really tragically there's some really awful kind of irish on irish violence so a lot of the citizens start to not quite attack but they try to dismantle the barricades because this is their like this might be their you street. Know, street this is right outside their house and 
the Irish volunteers start firing upon the oh, citizens. No. There's, and there's a few deaths, but you know, immediately they lose all credibility to be for the Irish people because they are now firing on the Irish citizens they're trying to protect. Also, at the Trinity College, which is the big university in Dublin, the students have armed themselves and are fighting the Irish volunteers. They're fighting so, against the Irish Yeah, yeah, they are not, they are 100% more British preferring. Mm. And they are actually want to set up um, Trinity College as possibly another headquarters for the British. Okay. So it's not quite, you know, it's not the, whoops, it's not the kind of firebrand student revolutionaries. They're actually on the side of the British. Mm. And what's, what's even, I think, even a harsher blow to the Irish volunteers, some Guinness Brewery employees hand their trucks over to the British to use as armoured vehicles. Well, the Guinness family are props. Yes. Massively. So they're not, they're, not, I they're guess from they Scotland not originally, I'm pretty sure. So that, that really doesn't surprise me. They're actually... No. But, but yeah, quite, still, that is, I mean, from, from today's perspective, Guinness being such a bulwark yeah. of the Irish sort of... Yeah, export. Mm. Yeah, that is that is that's really sad. That's it so sounds like they just got it wrong. They really did not. They 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 did not do a good enough job of checking like the pulse of the of the of city the, of the city. And yeah. quite quickly, as as the kind of death toll rises and blood is spilled, and you know civilian blood is spilled, Dubliners are turning on these Irish volunteers because they've brought this violence to their streets. Mm. They're, they're doing the exact opposite of what they hoped to to achieve, which is. So often something we say in this, but yeah, the the point of view of the civilians in this in this tale is really important to the success or you know, failure. complete failure of this rising. Yeah. So, uh, just interestingly enough, I didn't know you were doing this on the Easter Rising, but uh, I have actually read eyewitness accounts by my great great grandmother, who wrote she she lived in a place called Merrion Square, which is actually where Oscar Wilde was born, which is weird. Nice. It's a posh part of of Dublin, obviously. Um, and so my so great I mean, grandmother, because it's Oscar Wilde, not because I'm calling you posh. No, it's fine. I, I took it as both, so it's okay. <laughs> um, and my my great great grandmother um, talks about how her aunt was shot through a window um, in the leg mm. by a, a stray bullet, which yeah. is really interesting. While she watched the city burn at night. So she could see Man. it literally on fire. And she said, I do not understand what's going on. But the other thing is her husband, my great-great-grandfather, was a man who was a doctor called Arthur Window Willett Baker. And That's a great name. He, so he had actually been serving as a doctor on the front in mm. Boulogne. And he came back, and he was an oldish man by this point. And he was in military uniform, but as a doctor. So he had, like, the Red Cross yeah. on his thing. So he had been fighting. He was one of those guys who'd been over there. Sure. And think. So he set up a field hospital in one of the um, one of the parks. And him and he corralled together four or five of the other, like, really high-esteemed doctors. And they set up an entire field hospital for anyone. So yes. civilians, yeah. soldiers, and revolutionaries, anyone, to, to, to stop the violence. So I... I'd, I'd only really thought about that as you were talking about it. But yeah, so they, it, it affected everyone. It's, yeah, it's, you know, they chose Dublin as their battleground to their peril and really ended up putting the people they were trying to free from oppression in, you know, mortal harm's way. And there were hundreds of, of civilians dying. And it's really tragic because that's the exact opposite effect as they want. It gets really dark towards the later days. So it's only a six days. It's less than a week. Yeah. But on Friday, so about five days in, this is where some of the really dark times of this rebellion come. One of the darkest points is uh, comes late Friday night when a 
group of British soldiers who at this point are just fuming over the casualties. You know, not, I don't, possibly the civilian, well, probably not the civilians, more about their, you know, their brothers in arms that are dying for this this reason. And they get really, really mad to mm. the point where they break their way into a series of homes on North Street and they shoot or bayonet 15 unarmed men who later is figured out they had nothing to do with the uprising. <gasps> oh, it, no. It's, later, it's the North Street Massacre is what they, oh, they later... And both sides blame the other side for the tragedy. Yeah. So the, obviously the Nationalists say, look how awful the Brits are. And then the British are saying, well, you started this. This is what happens in war. You brought this violence to your city. Oh, it's, which is a bit so, of a, it's so needless. Yeah. And I know that they were doing it for the right cause. It's not that, yeah. but it's like that. those 15 men, families. Awful, oh. awful, awful. And supposedly one of the first people to die actually in the fight was a nurse from a British bullet. Because they, and despite wearing medic attire, you know, that's not how you're supposed to do it. But, you know, stray bullets, people are nervous. You know, they, they, a lot of these will be young a lot of the older men who might be a bit, a bit more battle-hardened would have gone off to war. Mm. The people here don't really know what they're doing. I, there's, I think there's, a, there's another battalion of British soldiers who are very green, very new, and they get absolutely massacred by uh, an ambush from the Irish soldiers because their generals or their, their, their commanders just order them forward and they have no idea. They're really unprepared. Mm. And it's just this really sad, like nothing's really being gained here. The British Empire are not being affected by this at all. It's just these... Poor, arguably British soldiers who, I mean, yes, they're fighting for the regime that's oppressing you, but they're just they're kith and kin. They're, yeah, they're, la they're they're lads from Leeds. You know, they're not. They're just they're just. But people the lads from Leeds and the lads from Dublin are they're basically genealogically the same people, and they're all under the oppression of the British state. You yeah. know, the, the people you're fighting and killing, you're not doing any damage to the British state at all, especially as it's still quite small, and you're not able to start this rebellion, this full nationwide rising yeah so it's just a huge amount of bloodshed for arguably no gain no so by the end of the week on the saturday so not even a full week on the on the sixth day the volunteers are absolutely exhausted they're almost out of ammunition medical supplies they are fighting against a never-ending force which is getting shoulders, stronger presumably. will yeah will be getting stronger stronger as they take more ground the fighting has now become really like street to street so it's really bloody it's people running between buildings, stabbing each other. It's really gruesome. And the nationalists are realizing this is just exhausting. And so Pierce orders his men to stand down on the 29th of April and they sue for peace with the British. Oh, I mean, can you imagine being Pierce in that position or, yeah. or Connolly? You know, you've done it for the, the cause, but it's backfired to such an extent that it's only really hurt their cause i mean yep. obviously i'm sure it riled up british resentment but i'm sure it also riled up british unionism at the same time so much yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no i think all of their actions they took from not alerting people to you know at some points firing on the dubliners um to kind of organizing this in a rush and you know not yeah. being a united front it all just spiralled out of control and they just do cause so much bloodshed and nothing happens. Mm. The British take over. All of the, you know, surviving nationalists, most of them are arrested. There's some really also, I mean, you know, although the, the nationalists have done, you know, some pretty bad stuff, British, the British Empire on form still continues to do awful stuff. There's a bunch of hearings and court cases that are apparently absolute bollocks. None of the nationalists are allowed, you know, kangaroo legal defence. Yeah, proper yeah. kangaroo court. Like um, we're going to hang you regardless. We yeah. might as well just keep the black hat on our heads. Absolutely, yeah. Black absolutely. cloth. Yeah. yeah. 
and the 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 figures at the end are and look the thing is the figures at the end obviously this is, you would, if you compared it to world war one or later the war of independence it's still quite small but for just this six days there are 126 british soldiers killed 17 police officers 66 volunteers and tragically 260 civilians so almost more civilians than anyone else died mm. so nothing really and nothing really happens and then the you know the irish so these you know the irish republican brotherhood the military council the irish volunteers all these people they, they saw this moment to kind of it's their time to inherit the fight that their forefathers for the last hundred years or arguably last 800 years from fighting against the british and in this moment of what they consider to be the glorious start of their new country they hurt more people they hurt their own people their people abandoned them because they're not they're not fighting for them they're fighting for this dream that doesn't actually fit with the dubliners and it's and it's an, a complete disaster it, yeah it, it was a mess but i wonder whether i mean we don't have anyone to counter this because it's just the two of us but hmm. um i wonder if the argument goes that the easter rising was somehow very much integral to the subsequent civil war oh sorry um independence war of independence so i would say it is because one little fact that i haven't told you well yeah. it's not a really fact but so all of the actions from the nationalists the irb the military council has just turned the majority of dublin and the irish population against their cause against the nationalist cause however the trials i mentioned at the end and the brutality at which the British put them down swings it the other way. Ah, okay. So, so they won the peace. The, yeah, they, yeah. The the British the British are just like horrible and are out for blood and are executing not just like the higher ups of the of the um, of the leaders, but like kind of anyone. You know, Root and branch. Yeah, they are really going full ham. Typical. And it's not so. It's not the revolutionaries that actually persuade the rest of the people to start believing in nationalism again they did the damage to that cause mm. but the british are the ones that galvanized Conversely. this nationalism. yeah so and they completely mess it up and so after you know after this goes on for like i think a few weeks and maybe a couple months of these trials that are just complete horseshit you know awful awful treatment to the to the nationalists even though they rose up they're still being really brutal there's this feeling <laughs> nothing some of the judges that were overseeing the court cases yeah. were officers that had fought in the battles. Oh my goodness! I mean, they're hardly know, going to be uh, very impartial. Isn't impartial, it? yeah, that's Which, the word. I mean, it's almost like you—I mean, you just like. But you're if, not meant to be impartial. It's the British Empire or nothing. Yes, this is these, these aren't these aren't court cases. These are just executions with some frills. Yeah, exactly. You know, so they can write down some piece of paper and pretend later. But this is what actually reignites. Right at the end of this, all this bloodshed, there's a bit of this reigniting of the the dream of uh, an island to, of an island ruling itself yeah and it's sparked by the british and interestingly there's a group that at this time that ha weren't involved in the uprising that decide to kind of use this to capitalize on it and build up their own image and they are Sinn Féin ah yes so this is kind of where they and supposedly they weren't even that Import nationalistic beforehand no. but decide they just kind of get lumped in and this is where they, they kind of all come together and think this is this can be our moment. And they are the ones who in three years' time will lead a much larger movement called the Irish War of Independence, where they get independence, 
and then immediately plunge into civil war. So there's a lot more history. But I mean, Irish Irish history is is complicated, and, yes. and it's still complicated to this day, as we said at the beginning. But yeah, that is fascinating, and it, it, it's it's a tragic beginning to our series actually i would say yeah but uh it's 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 you know it's less no it's just over 100 years ago yes really not that long ago and it's interesting because actually i i am i don't think i've mentioned this podcast but me and my family um we have like a a film club where we watch films together and we were watching um a film called not the banshee we did watch the banshees of inner sharon which is amazing i haven't seen it yet and does it barely references it but does take place during the irish civil war but it's on a little island and most of them are like good luck fighting for whatever you're fighting for like none of them really understand what it is and it's kind of it's interesting how they talk about the civil war but then i also watched a film which i don't know if you'd heard of it i hadn't heard of it before but were you gonna is it the wind that shakes the barley no it's not okay it's because it's not really about this it's called in the name of the father and it's about it's daniel day lewis and it's all about kind of ira bombings and uh, a small Irish family get caught up and accused of being... It's a bit like they're known as the Guildford Four. Oh, yes. It's a bit like the Central Park Five or le- these groups that are just, like, scapegoated and then there's this huge court case. They've been in jail for so long and then eventually they get acquitted. Because they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah the no, Guildford they had nothing bombing. to do with it. No, yeah. But it's yeah. so interesting, you know, this sort of history and, you know, the Easterizing and all this stuff is so recent. And it was interesting talking to my dad, who is fully Irish, and about how he remembers his... Uh, parents they were you know they they were Irish but moved to Leeds and how Irish sentiment was really quite toxic back in the day and it all comes from this kind of stuff because there's this long period of you know bloody violence which may not have needed to happen you know lots of people suggest that this is a completely unnecessary spout of violence when Ireland was already on its way to possibly a more peaceful transition mm. I was it, very interestingly and I, we might talk more about this in the in in the podcast but I was just in Iceland and actually heard about their um independence from Denmark and, from, from Norway yeah, f- uh, from Denmark, Denmark yeah. which is entirely peaceful What's they it? just mm. sent Denmark a letter and said we're independent during World War Two when Denmark couldn't really talk to anyone and, um, and apparently the the Danish king was just like sure and that was it so the you can split amicably but maybe not when the British Empire is involved because it doesn't seem like that ever happens no but so there are ways of getting around this but it's just it's, there's a, there's a ten, maybe yeah there's a tendency to just resort to violence and you know doesn't seem to solve anything and actually you know the the actions of the nationalists maybe cons- cons- could be considered of helping the Irish independence later, but it wasn't even their actions. It was just the brutality of the British mm. that then galvanised. But then arguably before this movement, people were still remembering the the brutality of British rule during the famine. Yeah. So they really just like lost all public appeal for the nationalist campaign and then let the British <laughs> reignite shit. it by ter- being terrible. So yeah. that's why I said at the beginning, you know, is this a really crucial moment in Irish history or is it not? Is it actually irrelevant? No, I think it is. That's why I come down on it because people died, and yes, I think it, it it bleeds into martyrs for the cause, yeah, the the ethos. And I think yeah, there is a certain amount of martyrdom. Look at the later hunger strikers in, in, in later years, you know. Yeah, like, I think um, yeah, Bobby Sands. Maybe not in like a, <laughs> maybe not in like a practical sense of this leading to that, but yeah, I think in the kind of the storytelling and the telling of Ireland's history, it is really important. Yeah, and actually, it's a good. I don't know. It's a good lesson for life of actually you know, this kind of violence doesn't really do anything. 
and I think you know I I wouldn't be as broad a sense that you can you know never resorting to violence makes sense because I don't know. Well, no, no, but I, it's it's hard to see where this can, and so many of these kind of things just end in disaster. But I, then again, you could be America. And but you I was going to say it. I disagree. I think that it's organized. That you have to be organized. They were a mm. mess. They were a and complete they, mess. They shot themselves in the foot, literally, mm. by doing it the way they did it. If they it had been coordinated... They, they sort of took a big risk, but they took a risk with not only their lives, but with the lives of Dubliners and other yeah. Irish people. Yeah. Whereas other revolutions, everyone was involved, so everyone took Think that risk. Think of the Culpepper ring. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, yeah. It, it people, takes... yeah, yeah. You know, small people were getting involved. You know, it's that kind of thing. If you don't have groundswell, it's not going to happen. No. And and there's a bigger when there's a bigger party going on, way east of you mm. it's not no one's looking it's not in vogue yeah that's the thing anyway uh, let's let's wrap it there because yeah. <laughs> well we're, we're getting dangerously close to recommendations for revolutions but, yes exactly i yeah. mean we already had quite a few recommendations for assassinations in our earlier series that's so true that's true recommendations for revolutions get the people on side you yeah. gotta you gotta do that you gotta which is i think a nice thing yeah. you know it's good the fact that revolutions fail when you don't do what the majority of people do I mean, it's kind of, you could consider it democratic or maybe mob rule. In a, in a it, yeah, it, it, it's finding the fine line. I mean, as I said earlier, de- democracy is messy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So, well, nice. thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoyed learning about Irish history because I don't know enough about it. Um, and so maybe we'll return to Ireland. I mean, we will be returning to Dublin in two weeks' time with your episode. Is there anything you would like to hint at, suggest give a it's very interesting that germany plays a role in your story Ooh, let's put it that way and my story on, on dublin is fairly close in years i'm not taking you you know back to the vikings mm-hmm. uh, or anything like that it's uh it's a fairly it's close in time to when yours happens but i'm not talking at all about irish nationalism in it really? so yeah it's a completely different thing and yeah so that, that's what i'm gonna say it's not about those cultists you mentioned earlier because i really want to hear about that no 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 yeah the hellfire club look up that if you guys are interested it's a it's a debauchery uh devil worshippers stranger things as well oh very possibly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Less orgies in that though, whereas less orgies, yeah, and devil. No worship. orgies, I think. <laughs> I hope so. I, I, I it's children. Since I watched it. But. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. And um, if you like what we are putting out there, tell a friend. And don't forget yes. that you can follow us at Cloak and Dagger Podcast on Instagram, where we put up three posts a week for each episode. So we start on Mondays with a sort of trailer sneak peek. Then on the Wednesday, when we release the episode, we get the full post with all of the photographs to, to go along with the uh, yes. podcast episode and then we always finish with a final wait there's more post on fridays just in case you hadn't had enough yeah well you've stolen my hellfire debaucherous orgies club back <laughs> so i'll have to come up with another one i'm sure you'll find something but thank you so much for listening guys and we'll be with you in a fortnight's time thanks guys thanks.